We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. All right, go ahead and turn to Acts 4. I know what you're thinking. You're like, it's already, we got like 10 minutes left, bro. Um, we started like 10 minutes late too. It's just been a weird morning, but I'm actually really thankful um, that this is going to be my shortest sermon ever because it's a weird, difficult text. So <laughs> we're just going to fly through it. I'm going to give you like a bird's eye view, and then I'm going to trust the Spirit to do some work. <laughs> um, but we also, we, we do in all seriousness, encourage one another to have conversations about this text afterward. It's an important one that I don't want to skip. I think we could have spent even more time just uh, praying over Paul and Sarah and then spending some time, evidences of grace, praying for one another. And that would have been, uh, great. Like, you don't have to have a sermon every time we gather together, right? But I want to include this text because it's a great connecting story between where we left off last in Acts and where Anthony's going to be preaching from in Acts chapter 5 next week. And I think it helps us see something very significant about what God is doing through his church. Acts is this amazing book where the, the good news of Jesus is spreading not just from the Jews in Jerusalem, but then to the neighboring cities and nations and then to the ends of the earth. And it's fitting, like as we are sitting here hearing about what God's doing in, across the other side of the world. But what's funny about that is like, we're actually the ends of the earth. You know, it started on the Eastern hemisphere. And yet because of what we see happening in Acts, because of God's spirit at work in his people, we are sitting here this morning with the good news that God is at work restoring all of his creation through his son, Jesus, and in the power of his spirit. Amen? And so it's just the irony in that, that now we're getting to be part of going back to the, to the eastern side of the world and to bring that as well. It's just, uh, you, you continue to see God at work. But in Acts chapter four, we're gonna pick up in verse 32, we're gonna read through 5.11. And I'm just gonna leave you with three main points. Uh, what we've been seeing is that the early church, the followers of Jesus, the disciples, and the, some people around them have now been filled with the Holy Spirit. So all the things Jesus had been saying and teaching them for three years is finally starting to make sense. And they're going out and sharing this good news with people. Verse 32, now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This then was distributed to each person as any had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit 
and keep back part of the proceeds of the land. Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. And a great fear came on all who heard, obviously. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. Father, we ask that you would help us to hear and understand and receive your word and be transformed by it, that we would see what your spirit is wanting to do in this group of people this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we just moved. Many of you came and helped us with that. Last Saturday, I think we had 15 people, about as many people in this room right now, uh, all from Missio, come and help us move. And that was amazing. We felt so blessed and honored by that. And anytime you move, you have to go through this process of deciding what stays and what goes, right? We actually had like one whole trailer that was just making goodwill trips, uh, another truck that was going to the dump, right? And so you're deciding like, why do we even have this junk? We don't need this. I don't want this in the new house, right? Uh, or you're deciding when you get to the new house, we're missing this. And so we've made a lot of Amazon purchases lately too. We don't have this thing that we, we could really use now in this house where we're at. And it doesn't change your family, and it doesn't change who you are, it doesn't change who you're about, right? But it, it's saying, in, in a way, you're kind of getting this fresh start, and you're going, we don't need this in the, in the house that we're moving to now, but this is what we do need. And as difficult as this text is we just read, I think there's something similar going on, on a much deeper sense, that God, remember, is building his church right now. He's, he's creating this new temple, where it's no longer a building that people had to wash up and be really clean and go through all these ceremonial rituals to get into, but it's the very people who follow Jesus themselves are becoming the temple of God. As Paul writes somewhere else, these living stones, right? And as God's building his home where he'll dwell with his people, he's deciding this doesn't belong here. Here's what needs to be here. And so as, as weird and as harsh and as much as we read this story, and we go, wait a second, that's very Old Testament, like wrath, judgment stories, right? Uh, and isn't this like post-Jesus and aren't things different now? Isn't, isn't God different now, right? Um, the reality is what we need to see is that, number one, God is the same God he has always been and will always be. Number two, the people in this story are no different than the people in the Old Testament, who were like, yes, God will follow you, and then don't over and over and over again. And number three, God, just as in the Old Testament, continues to show a radical grace and care and concern for both his name and his people. 
So what I'm going to do is give just a couple quick facts about this text, the things that pop out that we see, and then I want to go back and look at some other stories real quick, and we're going to do that as fast as humanly possible, okay? Number one, uh, when we look at the story, we hear that the entire group of who believed were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. All of them were laying their possessions at the apostles' feet, all of what they had. These are some big, bold statements that are all-encompassing. And then next week, when we uh, hear what Anthony is going to be preaching from, picking up in verse 12, what it says, many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. That's right outside the temple. Listen to this. No one else dared to join them. Like, no kidding. You just saw two people die because they didn't bring enough money down at the apostles' feet. No one else dared to join them, uh, but the people spoke well of them. Then it says, believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. So wait a second. No one else dared to join them. Believers were being added to them daily. What we have right in the middle, this story is supposed to be like a smack in the face, like wake you up to see something important, right? Because uh, right before you have, everybody is bringing all their stuff for the sake of the, the good of all. And then after that, n- none of the people want to join them because that was a scary moment. Uh, but then lots of people are joining them. Like, what is happening here? And what we see is, it's that now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And actually the ESV uh, in verse 13, when it says no one else dared join them, the ESV I think translates this better. It says none of the rest dared join them. And so you go, the rest of who? I think Ananias and Sapphira were not part of the believers of this community. There were people trying to get into the community. They see something going on. They see some powerful works happening through the apostles. They see that this community is all giving to one another, and there's something to be gained by being part of it, right? And in fact, some of the language used there, uh, a lot of translations will say, now a certain man, Ananias, and usually that's trying to get your attention. Like, this is not just a normal man. Like, this is something, a certain man, a specific, or maybe someone of significance. I think it's possible even And this is my thought here. I want to be clear. This is my thought. It's possible that they were part of the religious leaders of the Jews and and trying to come into this community and gain from what's going on there and kind of infiltrate what's happening there. Because then it says, and none of the rest joined them, but the believers, those who believed, were being added to their numbers daily. So there's some kind of distinction there being made between Ananias and Sapphira and the rest of the community, all right? So that's one thing that I think is very important for us to see, even if it's not, even if they weren't part of the religious leaders, the Sadducees or Pharisees, there's a huge distinction made in the word itself when we're told that this community had just been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And then Peter says to Ananias, why have you allowed Satan to fill you? That's the biggest distinction. So there's, there's an enemy in the camp is what's going on. So God's judgment here seems severe, doesn't it? Like what? He, he had to give all of his money and then he gets killed if that doesn't happen. And like, listen, it was tempting to kind of use the story and be like, if you guys don't put enough money in the box, I'm just kidding. Like that seems like a very severe judgment, right? But you know, God is protecting this community. 
And he is very serious about his holiness. So when these people come in and not just lie to the Holy Spirit, but do it in a way to actually take advantage of the community. Because if you think about it, everyone's bringing everything and going like this all in one pot, whoever has need, the apostles disperse it as they need it. If what they're doing is keeping a big portion of what they have back and not telling anyone, and then going, hey, look, we put everything we have in the pot. So you got to take care of us too. They're actually now taking advantage of the needs of the people in the rest of the community because they have enough and they're saying, we, we need some from here, right? And so the people who are actually, they had nothing to bring to the pot and they have nothing of their own and they need help. They're not getting what they need now because people who have and are withholding are taking as well. So what they're doing is, is not just, oh, you told a fib, but they're doing something kind of sneaky and underhanded to gain some control, some power, to make sure they have enough for themselves at the detriment of others in the community. And God's very serious about his holiness. Don't lie to him. And he's also very serious about the care of his community, right? And so they, they come and do this. And Peter's like, look, you could have even just said, like, I don't want to sell my land. And you would have been fine <laughs> because you're not messing with the pot <laughs> and you're not lying to God. You could have sold your land and then said, I, yeah, I sold it for this amount, but I'm keeping some of it. That's fine. Then we would have known, okay, Ananias and Sapphira don't need as much from this pot, and you wouldn't have been lying to God. Do you see what, what their problem was here? But instantly what we do is we hear this story, and it kind of takes us back to some of these weird things that happened in the Old Testament, deaths of these Old Testament people that seem severe, uh, specifically, the language used here is very connected to the Greek translation of what happens in Joshua 7. There's a guy named Achan who the Israelites have crossed the sea. They're in the wilderness. Moses has now died, and God is finally leading them into the promised land. And so they cross the Jordan River, and they do battle with another uh, nation. And when they do, God says, hey, don't leave anything behind, but also don't take it with you as your own. Burn it all. Why? Because when the Israelites plundered Egypt and they took a bunch of gold and stuff with them on their way out, what did they do with that gold? They made an idol out of it, right? And they were breaking like the first commandment as God was giving it, worshiping another God with the stuff they took from another nation. And so God's like, let's not repeat that mistake. I don't want that in my house anymore, right? So just destroy all that stuff when you defeat that nation. And Achan, he takes some silver, he takes a robe that he really thinks looks nice, some nice threads there, and he takes a bar of gold with him, and he hides it in his tent. And Israel starts losing their battle now against the next nation. There's some kind of cancer that has crept in to this community. It's causing damage and destruction on the whole because of his greed, because of his need to take, to provide for himself, not trusting God's words. And because he's worshiping, he's giving his allegiance to something else other than what God had said. And so what happens is Achan, they find out, and Achan and his family are killed. And we hear that story and you go, man, that seems harsh, right? Just because he stole? Like that, that, that's a little severe. Remember, God is saying, this does not belong in my home, in my throne room, in my people, in my community. 
But I actually think this story of Ananias and Sapphira reminds me of another story to go further back in the garden. And this is where we're going to end it right here, okay? Two other people, a man and a woman, who see something and desire it and take it. And the narrative is kind of flipped in a sense because in the first story, it was the woman who was doing this, yet the man was right there with her being complicit. And in this case, the focus is on the man, and Ananias is doing this thing, but his wife, the woman, was right there with him being complicit. So if you ever get this like, idea of like, oh, man, it's really the woman's fault, like, this story is showing us, no, we're all a mess, right? And, and we're conspiring together in that mess. And so in that story, they, they see something that God told them, this is not for you, and yet they take it to provide for themselves. Maybe God's holding out on me. And what does it do? It causes, God tells them, it will bring death. And they're sent away and exiled from him. God's saying, I will not have this in my home. But even that act, that exile, is an act of mercy for them. God does not want them to live in that state of rebellion and brokenness forever. The fear and the shame that came upon them in that moment, God doesn't want them to live in that forever. So in his mercy, he closed them and he sends them out so they don't eat from the tree of life. I think the same thing's happening here with Ananias and Sapphira. In God's provision for his community, these people who are coming and taking, they're listening to the lies of the serpent, right? Satan has filled them. And they're doing damage to the community. God's saying, this doesn't belong. And I think the story kind of goes deeper in the illustration because not only do Ananias and Sapphira reflect the first man and woman, I think they themselves being filled with Satan as Peter said, are reflecting the serpent itself. The serpent has crept into the camp, into the garden, and he is there to do destruction to God's people. And God in his protection says no. Now listen, I started with explaining why I think Ananias and Sapphira are distinct from the rest of the community because this is important. For those of us who are now in Christ, we aren't one of those who get filled with Satan to go and do these destructive things. We are filled with the Holy Spirit and we have the protection of Jesus around us. So if you ever read this story and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, if I don't do this and if I don't do enough of that, if I tell a lie, I might drop dead. No, no, no. Jesus has entered into that death on our behalf already. Jesus entered into the destruction that the first man and woman brought into the world that Ananias and Sapphira were continuing to try to bring into God's community. Jesus goes and he does that on our behalf and in our place. He too dropped dead, but he rose again on the third day. And if we're in Christ, we don't have to fear these things, right? But instead, out of a gratitude that Jesus has provided life for us, out of a gratitude that God has called us to be part of his community, part of his family, to be in his home, he says, yes, you belong in my home. I'm taking you with me. Out of that gratitude, that should stir generosity the way it did for all these believers who are saying, hey, people are in need. Let me bring what I have. We don't live in the same kind of economy and culture that they did back then. And so I'm not asking all of you to come and sell your houses and bring Anthony and I all of your proceeds, right? We're not going to do that. But, but what Jesus has given for us, what's funny about this, Ananias, that name means God has given. And he failed to see what God had given him. 
There's another Ananias we'll see in Acts chapter eight, the one who is told to go to Saul when Saul's been blinded because he sees Jesus. And he's afraid Saul's gonna kill him because that's what Saul's been doing to Christians. And yet he's willing to give his life to do it because he knows Jesus gave his life for him. Which Ananias are we gonna be? When we see what Jesus has given us, may we give of ourselves for the sake of others so that God would be glorified, amen?